so thanks for coming out. I mean, I can't really believe you're here, really, because um, the weather's really great. It's like the first weekend of spring. And I bet you there's a bunch of people who are just outside and they didn't come to me. And you came, so that's really cool. So thanks. Um, we're starting a series, as uh, uh, Josiah said, on the, uh, the Psalms. And of course, it's kind of funny to even call them a series when they're only like four parts, but what else are you going to call it? Four parts. So we're calling it a series, four-part series on the Psalms. And um, we're not going to pick like just one Psalm and look at one Psalm and then another guy pick another Psalm and look at a Psalm. So it'll be me and Josiah and Dan as usual. What we're going to do is we're actually going to pick like Psalm ideas or like the kinds of Psalms that are in the Psalms, right? Songs or Psalms of praise, songs or Psalms of lament. There's all kinds of different songs in the Psalter because it's actually a hymn book. So that's the way we're going to approach it. So um, what will usually happen is somebody will talk about a theme in the Psalms and they may use six different Psalms to illustrate it. So just to give you a heads up about how we're going about it. Um, tonight, I'm going to kick off by talking about the Psalms of praise, or you can say songs of praise. And uh, the title is Created for Praise. When... Um, I'm going to try not to go too long, but I got a whole lot of material here. I, I just got to be honest with you up front. And so I might get kind of bogged down, and I'm going to try to be really deliberate, but it's, stay with me. Um, I'll, I'll do my best to quit sometime tonight. Um, when we think about uh, the act, any act of creation, we almost always assume a word purpose, right? When you think about creating something, it usually assumes purpose. Uh, it's not necessarily random, although you could randomly create something. But if you said, I'm going to create X, you probably are implying that you're going to create X with a purpose or for a purpose. Now that purpose might just be beauty, right? You might just want to produce a beautiful work of art. Or the purpose may be more functional. For instance, I'm looking through the window right now, and I see three objects on the table from where I'm sitting outside, because you guys were just out there eating. I see a pitcher, I see a stack of glasses, and I see a bottle. All three of those were created for a particular purpose, right? The pitcher was created for a purpose to be open on the top, not closed because there's no gases that are trying to be escaped from the bottle, like the bottle. It's an open pitcher, usually carries a liquid in it, and a liquid that's probably not carbonated. So the pitcher is used to do what? Pour. That's its functional purpose. Now you can't drink out of the pitcher. I've seen a lot of people do that when you're really thirsty you want to. But the purpose of the pitcher is not to drink out of, it's to pour into something to drink out of, right? So I look outside next to the picture and I see the cups. It's pretty clear what the cups are for. You could do things with cups that are not its purpose, but the primary purpose of a cup is to be an object to drink with. I look at the bottle. This one happens to be a Mountain Dew bottle. So on the inside, there's a purpose. There's a lot of caffeine inside that thing, right? Uh, it's got zing to it. There's a purpose for the drink itself, but also there's a purpose for the bottle. It's sealed on the top. It's it's, it's a container that's rather large, but it's got a tiny hole in the top from which you pour it. Not like the pitcher. It's just different. It's got a purpose. I asked Lori to leave this prop up here for me. This has got a purpose. It's a little different than a cup. It's a little different than a pitcher. It's a little different than the bottle. 
some of the same features are a part of this thing right here. But what's the purpose? Well, this is a camelback. And the purpose of the camelback is a little different than a cup. You don't want to take a cup on a hike, right? Um, the camelback, I'm not sure exactly how this one's designed, but some of them are designed in such a way that it, it almost functions like a straw kind of thing. You can suck water out of it rather than tip it back. But there's also this hook on this side of it. You know what that's for. That's the hook on your belt or the hook on your backpack, especially if you're hiking or if you're just going across campus. Each part of this has got purpose. So, you have purpose. You were created with a purpose. We could describe a number of things that were purposeful in God's creation of you, but one thing that is absolutely central to your purpose is praising God. You were created to praise God. Do you ever wonder why whenever the band gets up there and we sing, you feel like you've entered into a space that just opens up a new reality for you sometimes? You experience feelings, ideas, motivations from the heart. You experience things in those moments that you don't experience when you're playing basketball. It's an activity of praise and actually, you were created for that purpose. Um, one of the um, most important confessions of the faith in our tradition is called the Westminster Confession. And there's a catechism um, that uh, adults and children follow sometimes to learn what are the basics of theology. You know, one of the first things that's said in the, in the catechism, it's this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and... Do some of you know what the next part is? What is it? Enjoy Him forever. That, that one always kind of took me back. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Oh, that sounds really important, right? To glorify God. And enjoy Him forever. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to suggest that the enjoyment of God comes from understanding what it means to praise God. And in praising God, I actually enjoy God in a way that I couldn't if I was just studying God or thinking about God or even if I was just doing God stuff, good stuff. Praise creates enjoyment of God. Praise is really at the center of your being. So here's what I want to do. I want to break it up this way. First, I want to say something about the purpose of praise. Okay. And then second, I want to say something about the pattern of praise. And then third, I want to say something about the result of praise. Okay? So first, the purpose of praise. Did you ever wonder, like some people have, um, why God says to praise Him when he, He's got everything? I mean, doesn't it seem kind of weird to you that God demands praise of people who are way beneath Him and He has everything and it's sort of like, do you really need to be doted on God? Right? You, you know all those dictators that are surrounded by thousands and millions of people who are bowing down to Him and praising Him all the time and they got the pictures up on the billboard and on the walls of buildings and everything. It's all about praise of the dictator. Doesn't it feel like that a little bit? At least some people think it does. If you've ever had that thought, you're in good company, and you're in good theological company, good Christian company, because C.S. Lewis said the same thing. 
He said, when I first heard about praising God, it seemed almost abhorrent to me. Why would God demand praise of us, his creatures, when he has everything? What is he in need of me praising him? Does he really have that kind of ego that he needs me to do that? Lewis said, I began to realize that praise was for a different purpose. I'm going to read several different quotes tonight, okay? So hear this one first. He says, what do we mean when we say a picture is admirable? Okay, you're in an art gallery or you're in my house and there's some nice paintings in there. What do we mean when we say the picture is admirable? We certainly don't mean, he says, that it is admired for the bad work is admired also by thousands and good work is ignored by thousands more. In other words, we don't say when we say the picture is admirable that only that picture is admired and no other picture is admired because some pictures are admired that are not admirable. Okay? Nor, he says, when we hear the word the picture is admirable, nor that it deserves admiration in the sense in which a candidate, you, a student, deserve high marks from your examiners. You deserve an A. It's not that, he says, that a human being will suffer some injustice if he's not awarded it. If you do an A paper and you get a D, that's an injustice. Lewis says, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about praise to God. The sense, he says, going back to the picture, the sense in which the picture deserves or demands, interesting words, deserves or demands admiration is rather this. Here's the key. That admiration is the correct, adequate, or appropriate response to it, the picture. And that if paid, if admiration is paid to the picture, it will not be thrown away. And if we do not admire it, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. Why? Because we will have missed something. So when someone says of a picture, that thing is worthy of praise. It doesn't just mean it's a good picture. It does mean that. But there's a deeper meaning to it. It means if you don't look at that picture and realize its beauty... You've lost something. Life has just passed you by. Beauty has just zoomed right past your senses and you didn't even see it. You didn't hear it. Think of a symphony. You didn't, whatever. It's just like it was there and you missed it. And that's a travesty. So he says, when I think of praise of God, I think of it that way. In other words, to not praise God is just to be stupid is just to miss out on life, is to let all beauty pass you by without even recognizing it. That's why God, he says, deserves praise. So first reason or purpose for praise is God is worthy of it, okay? Second reason or purpose for praise is that praise actually helps us to remember. All right? 
There's a wonderful psalm, Psalm 103, that goes like this. It says, praise God and forget, or bless the Lord, and forget not his benefits. That's an interesting phrase. Bless the Lord or praise the Lord and don't forget his benefits. I wonder why the psalmist puts that in there. Don't forget his benefits and links it with praise of God. One really wonderful author on the Psalms puts it this way. In speaking of Psalm 103, he says, Bless or praise the Lord and forget not. Those two calls to bless or praise the Lord and forget not, those two calls have the same meaning. Why did the unknown person, the psalmist, address this call to himself? Why did he say to himself, Bless the Lord, praise the Lord, and don't forget why did he say this? So that God's benefits would not be forgotten. The coordination of bless and forget not expresses a profound truth. Get this. Only those who praise do not forget. Only those who praise do not forget. One may indeed Speak about God and still have forgotten Him long ago. One may reflect on the nature of God and still have long since forgotten Him. Forgetting God and turning away from God always begin when praise is silenced. Now, let me just say something uh, personal at this point. I'm going to put Dan in this one too. Dan and I are in a really dangerous profession. Because we study God all the time. And both of us like to study. And Dan's really good at it. And you know what the problem is? We could do exactly what this guy says. We could study God. We could think about His nature. We could examine the text. And we could have forgotten God. Because you can do all the study in the world and forget God. If you don't praise God. Because you were created to do that. You will never know, love, and follow God adequately unless you exercise praise. You can't just think about God and worship Him. That's what Psalm 103 says. Praise and don't forget. It's really, really important. There's something else that praise does. Um, it's a purpose. Praise actually allows us, well, it allows us the pleasure of being participants with God. Psalm 147 says, How good it is to sing praise to our God. How pleasant and fitting it is. When I enter into praise, it creates pleasure. It really does create pleasure because I'm participating in God's reality. That's a purpose. A fourth purpose is praise is an invitation to participate in something that never changes something that came before us and something that will continue after us. Um, I mentioned this man called Westerman. 
Um, he also says something I, I think is very interesting about praise. Um, I want to quote this one to you as well, if I can find it. Hang on a second. Yeah, here it is. He says, The summons, the call to praise God, offers us participation in that which alone is steadfast, which alone can fit into a unified whole the many individual moments that change so rapidly and restlessly. This summons, this call to praise, accomplishes the same purpose for the author as it does for us today. It actually helps us to participate in the only thing, the only thing that's eternal. Um, I was really looking forward to IU being in the Final Four and you know playing for the National Championship on Monday. And I don't get to participate in that. And I'm really bummed about it. And I'll get over it on Tuesday. And as great as it is, it's no participation in eternity. It's just a passing thing. This kind of participation praise links you to eternity. Something that never passes away. It's profoundly different than anything else. And sometimes when I'm at the IU basketball games, I think maybe I'm praising the team the way I should praise God. But that's another matter. Okay, so the second part. That was only the first part. I told you. I'm going to try it. Second part is, what's the pattern for praise? Okay? In the Psalms, what's a pattern for praise? I want to use one psalm to illustrate that. Okay? Psalm 147. And if you've got uh, your Bible or your iPhone or whatever it is you do, um, take a look at Psalm 147 with me for just a minute. Here's what Psalm 147 says. Praise the Lord. How good it is... Um, to sing praise to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise Him. I've already mentioned that. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. Praise God because, in effect, the psalmist says, He's sovereign over all things. He takes care of everything. He builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles. He's in charge of it all. Praise Him for His infinite wisdom. Verse 5. Um, and verse 4, he determines the number of stars and calls each of them by name. Great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. So we praise God in terms of our pattern for his infinite, unbelievable understanding. By verse 6, the psalmist calls us to praise God for his character. And in verse 6, we hear these words. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. You see what's going on there? We're praising God for two things. For justice and mercy. Because He's a God of justice and mercy. So our pattern of praise ought to praise Him for those things as well. And then jump over to Psalm 150, which probably is just on the next page for some of you if you've got a Bible. Um, Psalm 150, I'll just read the whole thing. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him for the resounding with, with the resounding with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with the strings and flute. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know what that is? It's a mandate. It's a command. Praise the Lord always for everything, all the time. 
Just do it. Because you were created to do it. And it'll bring you life. So there's a number of things that are reasons or patterns of praise. Psalm 147, you can see, is a pattern of praise. The way we praise God for His unlimited understanding, for His character, for His mercy, for His justice, for all the things that are God. You praise Him for that. But there's another thing that you want to do when you praise God. And here I, I borrow two thoughts from uh, an older theologian. Some of you may have heard his name, maybe not. His name is J.I. Packer. And J.I. Packer says, if you want to know what a real pattern of praise towards God looks like, there's at least, and I'm just I'm editing here, there's at least two things you ought to do. Here's what you want to do. If you want to praise God, or let me put it this way. You want to write your own psalm tomorrow morning or tomorrow night or whenever you have your quiet time? You want to praise God the way David did or the psalmist? Here's what you want to do in your time of praise. The first thing you want to do is you want to remove from your minds any thoughts of limitation. When you praise God, you want to remove any thoughts of limitation. Right? When I praise my wife, i got to be honest, she's not perfect. And so when I praise my wife, I can't say everything perfect about her because it wouldn't be true. She can't do the same for me. You know, we're pretty honest. You were here a couple weeks ago. We were up here talking, right? That's just true. But when I praise God, I don't have to worry about that. There are no limitations on His character. There's no limitations on His promises. There's no limitations on His perfection. God is beyond everything I can comprehend. So I engage in praise that way, right? That's the appropriate way to praise God. Let, let me just refer you to one other psalm here. Uh, psalm 139 as an illustration of this. Psalm 139 is a wonderful psalm. Um, I've used this psalm as a pastor in so many different circumstances. Um, and honestly, one of the most meaningful circumstances is holding the head, of, uh, the head or the hand of a person who's dying and reading the psalm. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know me when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, the Lord. God, I thank you and I praise you that you know me completely. No limitations to your knowledge of me. I praise you for that, God. I'm not going to limit you in that regard because I know there are no limits to your understanding. How about continuing on? Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. Nah. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. God, you not only know me inside and out, 
That means omniscient. <laughs> to know completely. You not only know me that way, but you're always present with me. You know me that way. You know where I am. You know when I come. You know when I go. You know when I'm up. You know when I'm down. I can't hide from you. And, and that can be kind of scary at some point, right? Because sometimes you want to hide from God, just like Adam did in the garden. But there's something also very delightful about it. You can't hide from the God who knows you inside and out and loves you more than you could possibly love yourself. You can't hide from that God. God, I praise you. There is no limit to your understanding. There's no limit to your knowledge. There's no limit to your presence. And I praise you for that. Or how about um, verse 13 through 16. You created me, or you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Don't take that literally. The psalmist doesn't think you were hatched out of the ground. Okay, It's an image. It's a metaphor of how God knit you together. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts of me, O Lord, about me. How vast the sum of them. If I was going to number them, they would outnumber the sand and the sea, the stars in the sky. It would be limitless. God, I thank you because you have no limitations. There is no one like you. So when you praise God, you remove limitations from your mind. The, the second thing, and I know it sounded like a lot of stuff, that was only one point. The second thing J.I. Packer says is if you want to praise God adequately, you compare Him to powers too great to comprehend. See, the psalmist does that all the time. He compares Him to powers that he cannot possibly comprehend. He can't understand the weather, right? He wasn't a meteorologist. He can't understand the power of other things. We see it in other parts of the Scripture. And so he attributes power to the things that are greater than he can even comprehend. And he's not saying you're as powerful as the waves of the sea. He's saying the waves of the sea are so powerful that no ship can overcome them. And you're greater than the waves of the sea. You created the waves of the sea. He's not saying that God is as big as the universe. He's saying that the grandeur of the universe only shows him a portion of how great and how big God is. So he compares him to stuff that's incomprehensible and uncomparable to anything else. And when he compares God to that, he enters into praise. Um, sometimes our theology, our, our thoughts about God, and even our songs are really too limited. They're just all about us. Um, I don't want to critique contemporary music in totality because I know there's a lot of contemporary music I don't know. But for a time, a lot of contemporary music was all me and you oriented. And there was not a lot of grandeur about God and His majesty. And what was characteristic of some of the great so uh, songs of the church, the hymns, so-called hymns, they were about the majesty and the greatness of our God. The contemporary songwriters are, I think, coming back around to that, beginning to embrace it and understand it in a way they didn't, at least when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s. 
I think we're turning the corner on that, but it's late. We should have been there a long time ago because God is huge. He's awesome. He's almighty. That's why songs like Holy, 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 just straight up, Holy, 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 are overwhelming. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. Um, I read a quote um, one time by a guy called Charles Meisner. It was in a periodical called First Things. Um, and uh, Charles Meisner said something about Albert Einstein that really struck me. He said this, um, the design of the universe is very magnificent. This is not Einstein, but Meisner. And shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe, says Meisner, that's why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Though he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt like they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions that he'd come across did not have the proper respect for the author of the universe. Now look, I'm not here to tell you I know enough about Albert Einstein to say that that quote is true. But I'm struck by it. And I wonder if it's not true. Not just about Albert Einstein, but about a lot of other people. Because we make God so small, so tiny, so accessible. What's left of grandeur? No wonder the universe looks bigger than God. But embedded in these psalms, if the preachers like me would look at them, we'd be reminded that God is greater than all that as creator of all that. And we would remind people who God was. We need to remind ourselves of who God is. Today, tomorrow, and the next day. Especially when you're in the midst of this minuscule detail of your life that seems absolutely overwhelming and like a universe. It's not. Think about the grandeur of your God. Um, just quickly, I want to say something about the results of praise. When we engage in praise of God, we actually are communicating with God. Right? It's not just a dress rehearsal where nobody's there. When we praise God, we're communicating with God. We're speaking to God. So it's communication with God when we praise God. Second thing is, when we praise God, we place ourselves in the center of God's story. And it creates a world inside us that is less self-centered than we create for ourselves. When I praise God about who He is and what He's done, the Psalms are great about this too. They praise God not in the context of just the daily activity of the psalmist's life. They praise God for the past, for the present, and for the future. Right? So the activity of praise of God that way, it takes you from self-centeredness and places you in a story that's long 
and huge. It gives you meaning that you otherwise would not have on your own when you praise God. Praising of God is actually a pathway to help us to understand God. It opens up our minds to understand Him. Praise of God, it guards us against self-pity. I've got all kinds of verses for these things and we don't have time. Praise of God invites us Excuse me, praise of God invites God to take up residence with us. Now that's a cool thought. You know what the thought is? It's in Psalm 22, 3. God, as the old text says, inhabits the praise of his people. When we praise God, God is present in a unique way. It just happens. I end again with one more quote and I'm done. Um, this one's also from C.S. Lewis. Um, he talks about one of the things that praise does for us. Um, he says, sometimes you might think uh, that praise is like tuning an instrument. There's nothing beautiful about tuning the instrument, right? But if you're in an orchestra and you're tuning the instrument with the first chair, you know there's something beautiful about it. Because everybody's getting on the proper pitch. There's something beautiful even about tuning the instrument. But what's so amazing in its beauty about tuning that instrument on that one note is what comes from it. What flows from it. Lewis says praise is a little bit like tuning our instruments. But, he says, like tuning our instruments, those instruments... And our praise, in them, there's much duty and little delight. Or perhaps none at all. Sometimes when you tune your instrument, it's just, you got to do it. Sometimes when you praise God, it's your duty to do it. It seems like there's no delight in it at all. But the duty exists for the delight. Okay, so let me be practical. Guys, tomorrow or today... You guys stay up all night, so you got a lot more of today left. Today, when you walk away from here and you're challenged to praise God and it feels like humdrum duty, do it anyway. It's like tuning your instrument. It's like tuning your instrument to be able to play in this grand orchestra of praise. But he says, duty exists for the delight. When we carry out our religious duties, that's like praise of God. Listen, we are like people. I love this analogy. Digging channels in a waterless land. In order that when at last the water comes, it may find them ready. It won't feel like praise sometimes. But when you exercise your Christian duty to praise God, it's like digging a channel in a desert. And then when it rains, the water runs to you. Just do it, my friends. Just do it. It has purpose. It has meaning. It will bring delight. I promise you, it will. And I hope you'll praise Him. Can I pray with you? 
Lord, I thank you um, for the truth that we were created to praise you. Seems like all over Scripture reminds us of that. And we thank you that uh, you love us enough to communicate to us that important truth. We pray, Lord, uh, that tomorrow. Because tomorrow always seems a long way off from Sunday. <laughs> but we pray that tomorrow, today will be real. We pray that tomorrow, the command to praise will be real. We pray that tomorrow, you will give us the discipline to tune our instruments. So that we can play in the symphony. You'll give us the strength to dig the channels. So when the rain comes, we'll experience the water. We thank you, Lord, for creating us to praise you. Because we know in the end, as we read the book of Revelation, we indeed were created for that. To praise you and to live in your kingdom. And we look forward to that final day when we can all be together in praise. And have all the baggage of sin stripped away. And all the encumbrances that just weigh us down. It'll be gone. And there'll be no more sorrow or pain or crying or confusion. Or death. It'll all be washed away. And we'll be able to enjoy you for who you are. And you will be able to help us to enjoy ourselves for who we were created to be. Uh, we look forward to that day, Lord. And in the meantime, uh, help us to praise you. And thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we usually do Q&A, right? Um, maybe we shouldn't at 7.15 already. Is that... Yeah, we probably should just say, praise God. Uh, maybe, maybe, what do you got, Alex? One more song? Okay. Can, can I request we do uh, one of you already did too? Let's do two songs. Who cares? Nobody can tell us not to, right? Uh, yeah. I, I love that song, Beautiful. It's kind of new to us a little bit, but I just love that song. So, whatever you're going to sing, put that one in there too, all right? All right. No. All right. <laughs> Thanks, John.